Hi, I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you are watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, and we are now in our ninth in a series of lessons on the antioxidant defense system. And we're now going to take a brief break from looking at the components of the system, and we'll, we'll look at its clinical application to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, a disease that affects an estimated 70 million Americans and is thus extraordinarily relevant. But this is also a good breaking point because, first of all, we're now at the point where we're going to transition between the antioxidant system proper and how the system of energy metabolism supports it. And this is also a topic where I have a good knowledge base to work on because my graduate lab in, when I was pursuing my PhD worked with green tea and fatty liver disease and I did some work on this myself. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or NAFLD is separated into two main stages called steatosis and NASH. And what you see on the screen is a healthy liver progressing to steatosis, which is simple fat accumulation, then progressing to non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is abbreviated NASH or NASH, and then to cirrhosis, which is one of the really serious complications. These first two stages are fully reversible. In the first stage, you have fat accumulation. If you simply reverse the causes of the fat accumulation, the fat accumulation will reverse. The second stage can be thought of as taking that fat accumulation and lighting it on fire. So steatosis is, the, is laying down of the kindling and the firewood. Nash is lighting the fire. This is oxidative stress and inflammation. Much of the oxidative stress is driven by lipid peroxidation because reactive oxygen species are lighting that poofa on fire. They are, um, you know, some third of the fat that's accumulated, accumulated in the liver is poofa, highly vulnerable lipid peroxidation. Lipid peroxidation ensues and engages in a vicious circle with inflammation and oxidative stress. That is also reversible. But in the process of NASH, the oxidative stress and inflammation causes damage to the liver that can initiate fibrosis or the laying down of scar tissue. And the more and more that progresses, the more and more you have irreversible changes as healthy liver tissue is replaced with scar tissue. And you can get cirrhosis, you can get liver cancer, and you can get liver failure. When we say that this affects 70 million Americans, we mean everything to the right of this first stage. Progressively, lower numbers will be affected by NASH and then by the more serious complications. The progression of fatty liver disease is often described as there being two hits, the first hit steatosis, the second hit NASH on the way to the more serious complications. And a lot of the treatments are trying to impact either the first or second hit, so to speak. However, we have to appreciate the fact that if you accumulate fat in your liver cells, 
that in itself is associated with metabolic dysregulation and cardiovascular disease. And since the liver is the metabolic hub of the body, the central organ of detoxification, playing so many central roles, there are probably many reasons for why fat accumulation in the liver would be associated with disease risk. However, we could take one simple thing to explain a large chunk of that. And that is that if you look at liver cells under a microscope, when they've accumulated triglycerides, the nuclei of those cells are flattened. That's because the triglycerides take up so much room that there's not even room left for the nuclei of those cells. Imagine what that does to your glycogen storage. Those are the cells that you store glycogen in. So if the fat is taking up so much room in the hepatocytes that it's smushing and flattening the nuclei, you can bet your bottom dollar that cell doesn't have room for glycogen storage. And if you are decreasing your ability to store glycogen, how are you going to maintain stable blood sugar through the course of the day and overnight when your primary means of maintaining stable blood sugar in between meals is to access your hepatic glycogen? So it's no wonder that even simple fat accumulation would be associated with metabolic dysregulation and we should regard the 70 million Americans uh, and many others across the world that have steatosis, we should regard that as a problem that itself needs a solution. Fatty liver disease is strongly associated with obesity and insulin deficiency in type 1 diabetes and insulin resistance in type 2 diabetes. And you can see on the screen a basic diagram of why insulin is important. Insulin promotes the storage of fat in adipose tissue instead of the blood and the liver. Insulin causes the uptake of triglycerides from the blood into the adipose tissue and suppresses the release of free fatty acids from the adipose tissue into the blood. If you have obesity, obesity itself overwhelms the storage capacity of adipose tissue, which leads to more triglycerides and free fatty acids in the blood. But if you have insulin resistance or deficiency for any reason, that independent of the amount of fat you have stored is going to also increase the amount of free fatty acids and triglycerides in the blood. The more fat you have circulating in the blood, the more exposure the liver has to that fat. In addition, the liver is exposed to fat that comes in directly from the diet, and it's exposed to fat that can be synthesized from carbohydrate, especially sugars that contain fructose, or ethanol, the alcohol that we drink to get drunk. And out of those, dietary fat is much more important simply because de novo lipogenesis, the synthesis of fat from non-fat precursors, is a minor pathway in humans. De novo lipogenesis is increased threefold in people who have fatty liver disease, but its contribution to the hepatic fat pool is estimated to increase from about 5% to 15% 
So it's still minor compared to dietary fat and circulating fat that's entering the liver because it's not being stored in adipose tissue. In addition to controlling the flux of fat through the body, insulin improves antioxidant capacity in part by increasing the synthesis of glutathione. So that would also be compromised in someone who has insulin deficiency or insulin resistance. And for the remainder of this presentation, we're actually going to be focusing on oxidative stress. The accumulation of fat in the liver is a very simple equation between fat in and fat out. It doesn't matter that the liver is exposed to fat if that fat is easily exported. And the normal way to do that is to take triglycerides and combine them with a protein called ApoB to make VLDL particles. VLDL particles also critically depend on the supply of choline to synthesize the phosphatidylcholine that makes up the membrane of the VLDL particle. Those VLDL particles go out into the blood and are rich in the triglycerides that came from the liver. Eventually the triglycerides are exchanged for cholesterol with other lipoproteins and the VLDL is metabolized to LDL. In a healthy person, it doesn't matter how much triglycerides are going through the liver because they can be exported. But if you have a problem with the export of triglycerides, either because of inadequate ApoB secretion or inadequate choline, then those triglycerides are going to stay in the liver. And suddenly the more triglycerides going into the liver matter because they're not leaving. The data shown on the screen show the ApoB secretion rates of a small number of lean people, obese people without fatty liver disease, and obese patients with NASH. You can see the total amount of ApoB secreted over the course of several hours. And the big noticeable trend is that the lean and obese people without NASH are up here, whereas the Obese people with NASH are down here, and they have a much lower ApoB secretion rate. In fact, the patients with NASH had 27% of the total ApoB secretion as the lean and obese subjects without NASH. That means that their ApoB secretion was cut by three quarters. Now, this could be due to choline deficiency, but as I'll show you in the next slide, it could also be due to oxidative stress. The data on the screen are from an experiment where the cells of animals were isolated and they were exposed to conditions of oxidative stress and antioxidant protection to see how that would impact ApoB secretion. On the top, we have T-bars, which is a laboratory assay that is used to estimate lipid peroxidation. On the bottom, we have the rate of ApoB secretion from those cells. The experimental conditions were to use bovine serum albumin, or BSA, as a control, and to add DHA, an omega-3 fatty acid with six double bonds that's very vulnerable to lipid peroxidation as a cause of oxidative stress. Then to protect against oxidative stress, they used one of two treatments, either desferioxamine or DFX, which is a chelator of iron, or vitamin E. And you can see for lipid peroxidation, it went through the roof with DHA, but if they chelated the iron or if they added vitamin E, it returned to normal. 
when you look at ApoB secretion rates, they were dramatically decreased by DHA, and either method of antioxidant protection brought them back up almost back to normal. So what is exactly is going on here? Maybe it's the lipids in the membrane of the VLDL particle that are peroxidizing. Maybe that's causing oxidative damage to ApoB. Whatever it is, oxidative stress in the liver causes a massive decrement in ApoB secretion. And in fact, although we shouldn't read too much into the correspondence of this study and the one I showed you before, it's pretty remarkable that in humans with NASH, ApoB secretion is decreased by about three quarters. And in this experiment, lipid peroxidation decreased ApoB secretion by about three quarters. So the parallels are pretty remarkable. This shows that oxidative stress impairs hepatic secretion of triglycerides and thereby contributes to the first hit of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is simple steatosis. Now let's look at evidence that it affects the second hit, the progression from simple steatosis to NASH. The data on the screen are from mice fed a methionine and choline deficient diet, or MCD diet. Methionine is a precursor to choline, and choline is needed for hepatic export of triglycerides. So an MCD diet makes the mice profoundly deficient in choline by cutting down both the choline and its precursor so that the mice are unable to export any triglycerides from their liver. And these mice then, regardless of where the fat comes from, whether it's synthesized in the liver or whether it comes from adipose tissue or dietary fat, they can't export triglycerides from their liver. So all of them, regardless of what they're fed, should have very fatty livers. In making all of the mice have fatty liver, they then manipulated the type and amount of fat in the diet in order to see what impact they have on the second hit of fatty liver disease, the progression from simple steatosis to the oxidative stress and inflammation that characterizes NASH. And they used the standard MCD diet, which uses corn oil as the fat, and they replaced it with either a low-fat diet or replace the corn oil with tallow or coconut oil. As you go from corn to tallow to coconut, the tallow is lower in PUFA, the coconut oil is even lower. On the left, you see T-bar as a marker of lipid peroxidation. On the right, you see reduced glutathione. You can see that the MCD corn oil diet caused lipid peroxidation to go through the roof. The low-fat diet protected against that, but the tallow was even better and the coconut oil was best. Indeed, look at the coconut oil. It's brought lipid peroxidation back down to the level of the control animals. On the right is reduced glutathione. It's the mirror image of the lipid peroxidation. The corn oil diet causes a big decrease in reduced glutathione, and then the low-fat diet offers some protection, the tallow is even better, the coconut oil is best. In fact, the coconut oil completely normalizes the level of glutathione to the level found in the controls. The data on this screen are from the same study, but looking at histology scores, which is the practice of taking the tissues of the mice and looking at them under the microscope to judge their qualitative characteristics 
And in this case, taking those qualitative characteristics and translating them into a quantitative score so that the higher the number, the worse the effect, whether it's on fat accumulation on the left or inflammation on the right. And if you look at fat accumulation in the liver, there's no statistical difference between any of the diets. All of the, they don't show the control here, so this is each of the four versions of the MCD diet. In fact, the fat is a tiny bit higher in the animals that were better off. So clearly, none of this is being mediated by changes in the fat content of the liver. We saw before that oxidative stress was better when you replaced corn oil with any of the substitutes. And here we see the same thing with the inflammation. All three of them have dramatically lower inflammatory scores in their livers compared to the mice fed the corn oil-based MCD diet. So lowering the PUFA in the diet lowers the oxidative stress in the liver and thereby also lowers the inflammation, thus protecting against the second hit of NAFLD, which is the transition from steatosis to NASH. Now, how does green tea affect this process? Well, shown on the screen is data from a study that was not done by me personally, but was done in the laboratory of which I was a member during graduate school. And you can see histology slides of the livers of lean mice in the upper left compared to obi-obi mice, which are mice that genetically lack leptin, a hormone that's important to regulating appetite and energy expenditure. The obi-obi mice become spontaneously fat regardless of their diets and develop fatty liver disease. And you can see that in this slide by looking at these very large white blotches, which are lipid droplets in the livers that are largely absent in the left. If you add 0.5% green tea extract, the lipid droplets begin to break up, and if you increase that to 1%, they largely disappear, becoming almost like the livers of the norm, genetically normal lean mice. So green tea extract protects against the first hit of NAFLD, the development of simple steatosis. The data that are on the screen now look at the second hit of fatty liver disease, oxidative stress and inflammation. 4-HNE is shown on the left. This is a marker of lipid peroxidation. NADPH oxidase activity is shown on the right. Although NADPH oxidase activity causes oxidative stress, the activity of that enzyme is a marker of inflammation because the immune system is what's making the NADPH oxidase. Now you can see that lipid peroxidation increases in the OBOB mice and green tea extract brings it back down to normal. Inflammation increases in the OBOB mice, green tea extract brings it back down almost to the level of the normal controls. Thus, green tea extract protects against not only the first hit, but also the second hit of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in OBOB mice. That is, it protects against the oxidative stress and inflammation that characterizes NASH. Well, how did green tea protect against oxidative stress and inflammation? By acting as an antioxidant or a hormetic pro-oxidant? Let's take a look at glutathione. Shown on the screen is the total glutathione across the different groups of animals. You can see that the total glutathione in the liver decreased in the obese animals, but if they were fed green tea extract, you had a dose-dependent normalization of that. But was that 
reduced glutathione or oxidized glutathione? Well, shown on the screen are GSH on the left and GSSG on the right. Unremarkably, the GSH shows the, the same pattern where it dips in the obese mice, but green tea normalizes it. What's remarkable is that the GSSG shows the exact same pattern. That suggests that it's a matter of synthesis rather than recycling or sparing from oxidation. If green tea was helping to recycle glutathione, then it should help convert GSSG to GSH, and there should be less GSSG and more GSH. If it were sparing glutathione from oxidation, it should prevent GSH from becoming GSSG, and again, there should be more GSH and less GSSG with green tea. Instead, what we see is that GSH and GSSG follow the same pattern. So here's what I think is going on. The obese animals, partly due to insulin resistance in their livers and partly due to oxidative stress depleting glutathione, have less GSH. In previous lessons, we talked about how glutathione isn't just an antioxidant and isn't just a detoxifier, but the glutathione redox status, measured in millivolts, which is equally impacted by the total amount of glutathione and the GSH to GSSG ratio, is a key regulator of many, many proteins under the control of glutathione. So when the GSH is decreasing, the liver has to try its best to maintain a normal redox status of the glutathione pool. And one of the main tools in its kit to do that is to spit GSSG out into the blood. By getting rid of GSSG, the liver will modify the GSH to GSSG ratio in a way that compensates for the decrease in GSH. And so what you see then is that GSSG is decreased for that reason. But when you supply the green tea, it improves the synthesis of glutathione. And by normalizing GSH levels in the liver, the liver now no longer needs to spit GSSG out into the blood and so it no longer does, and GSSG levels normalize as well. In support of the enhanced synthesis, we see that the mRNA expression of the glutamate cysteine ligase enzyme, which is the first enzyme in the synthesis of glutathione, was increased by green tea. But what's remarkable about this data is that in all the other data, we saw obesity due to leptin deficiency do something bad to the mice that green tea reversed. Here, we break rank with that whole string of observations, and what we see is that there was a small increase in glutathione status, glutathione synthesis, caused by genetic obesity, and that was massively enhanced by the green tea extract. So, Obesity and leptin deficiency in the genetically leptin deficient animals, this is leading to oxidative stress that's upregulating glutathione synthesis, but not enough to compensate for all the stress on the livers. Then green tea comes in and, acting as a prooxidant that oxidizes the thiol groups of KEEP1 to allow NERF2 to be released and translocate into the nucleus where it can upregulate glutathione synthesis, green tea does all that, 
and massively enhances the signal to increase glutathione synthesis. So it's doing the same thing to glutathione synthesis as the oxidative stress caused by the obesity. However, the oxidative stress by the obesity, however, the oxidative stress caused by the obesity is doing more damage than NERF2 upregulation. The green tea extract is doing more NERF2 upregulation than any damage it's causing. So there's net detriment caused by leptin deficiency, obesity, and fatty liver, net benefit caused by the green tea extract. So let's try to put this into the broader context of research that's been done. We also know that green tea extract or its catechins protect against non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in other animal models that include other genetic abnormalities, choline deficiency, and diet-induced obesity. Green tea also has other mechanisms not discussed in this presentation. It has independent anti-inflammatory mechanisms, and it also decreases the absorption of practically everything from the intestines. If you want to make green tea extract look bad, you would point out that it decreases the absorption of nutrients. If you want to make it look good, you point out that it decreases the absorption of toxins. Among the nutrients, that includes micronutrients like vitamins, but it also includes macronutrients like glucose. So green tea extract included in the diet is going to decrease the caloric load of the diet. So it's very difficult to tease apart the exact mechanisms by which green tea is operating. All that said, I provided you with clear mechanistic evidence that it's affecting both the first and second hit of fatty liver disease and that it's impacting oxidative stress and inflammation in part by upregulating NERF2 and having a hormetic effect that improves glutathione synthesis. So even though there are many mechanisms that could be operating, clearly the hormetic mechanisms are part of that picture. We don't have clear evidence that can be used to define whether green tea extract will reverse or prevent fatty liver disease in humans or by which we can define the specific contexts and doses and protocols by which we could use it in that way. However, green tea has been shown to increase total blood glutathione in type 2 diabetics when mixed with vitamin C and pomegranate extract and to have positive impacts on energy balance in healthy humans, including increasing energy expenditure. And in the context of the broader research, it makes sense that it could have some potential to help in humans with fatty liver disease. Further, observational studies show that in Asia, where green tea intake is very common, people who drink more green tea have lower risk of cardiovascular disease and metabolic dysfunction, altogether suggesting that green tea is on the whole, beneficial. Now, it's important to keep this in the context of all the other lessons in this system and to remember that the hormetic effect of green tea extract or any other phytonutrients is going to be dependent on nourishing the system that responds through the NERF2 pathway. So we can't neglect the amino acids that are needed to synthesize glutathione, the minerals that are needed as cofactors for the antioxidant enzymes. And as we'll see in the lessons to follow, 
everything that's important to energy metabolism is also critical to this system, and that includes B vitamins that are hardly ever recognized as antioxidants, and yet are just as essential to all the parts of the system that we've discussed so far. All right, I hope you found this useful, insightful, or enjoyable, or some combination thereof. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You have been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, and I'll see you in the next video.